Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two on our uh, discussion of radiation dose. And we left off here at this slide last time, and I think this is a very important article for everyone to read. And it's really a great article. It's actually two articles that were written sort of a point-counterpoint talking about what is really the facts and what do we understand about radiation dose and its complications. And really, this focuses on whether the linear no-threshold relationship, which is the basis for all of the articles that Brenner or Einstein wrote, is indeed true. And again, this is looking at the science, hopefully. And when you look at this, the first article is by Little, who said that that theory is indeed correct and said that, in summary, excess cancer risk obtained in Japanese atomic bomb survivors and in many medically and occupationally exposed groups exposed at low or moderate doses are generally statistically compatible. For most cancer sites, the dose response in these groups is compatible with linearity over the range observed. And, you know, that is more of a statistical impression, looking at data, trying to kind of look at data that has been interpreted many different ways from increased risk to no increased risk. So again, very, very important. And on the flip side, to be honest, which sticks more with the science says, look, let's look at what it says in science and nature in every key journal. Several things. Irradiated cells protect themselves by immediate defense, repair, and damage removal mechanisms, and by delayed and temporary protection, as well as renewed DNA, irrespective of cause, that is done through adaptive responses. And so to say that cells do not repair themselves, that the linear no-threshold relationship is additive, is inconsistent with the published literature. And the fears associated with this concept of linear no-threshold model and the idea that any dose, even the smallest, is carcinogenic lacks scientific justification and that among humans there is no evidence of a carcinogenic effect for acute radiation at doses of under 100 millisieverts and for protracted irradiation at doses less than 500 millisieverts. And he concludes that, look, this linear no-threshold model was a useful model a half a century ago, but current radiation protection concepts should be based on facts and on concepts consistent with current scientific results and not on opinions. Preconceived concepts impede progress. In the case of the LNT model, they have resulted in substantial medical, economic, and other social harm. So again, let's stick to the science. Now, the challenge for radiology, of course, is that the public at times Science is not exactly what they're looking at. And in fact, when you try to use science to explain something, they're often saying that you're just doing a cover-up. So it's very tricky. So things we do need to do, however, in dealing with the public is really trying to make certain the public understands that we understand there is a potential issue, surely, and we want to make certain that if there is any potential problems, we're kind of minimizing or eliminating it. So in this article by Amos, the ACR, an advocate for radiation safety for more than 80 years, had a blue ribbon panel on radiation dose in 06, had 37 recommendations. And in this article, they looked at some of the recommendations and what has happened. And the ACR goes a long way, and their point is well taken that everybody's responsible, from the referring physician to radiologist to radiology technologist to patients, physicists, vendors, and regulatory agencies. Everyone's responsible. Referring physicians need to understand more about radiation. They need to know more about what we're doing and what the selections are for their patients in terms of examinations. Radiologists are the key person, or up to the number two key person. You need to really understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, 
better understand CT protocols, encourage more understanding. Technologists really need to be experts on radiation. If you're doing CT, you should be trained in CT, not someone who does CT one day a week and you're not certain what you're doing. Patients, we need to work with the patients so that there is confidence in what we're doing. Physicists need to be aggressively involved. We need to work with vendors to make certain we're all on the same page. Vendors want to sell scanners, but they want safety. They want good patient care. We're on the same page. Let's work together. And we need to work closely with the FDA and NRC to work together, not against each other or we're not to look at their enemies or we're enemies. We're really all on the same team. A good article, AJR by Strauss, Image Gently. Remember, there's two campaigns, Image Gently and Image Wisely. Image Gently focused on children. And they talk about 10 steps for technologists and radiologists with the assistance of the medical physicist. And their steps are very simple. The first thing is just the fact that you're, under, you're making the awareness greater. That's a critical thing. So at Hopkins, we have a team of technologists, one for each different area, that really pays attention to radiation dose. We, they have meetings, work with the physicians. Again, you need hands-on processing. You need to have a physicist. If you don't have a physicist who's helping you out, who's working and making sure doses are okay on the scanner, you have a problem. Get accreditation from the ACR or some other organization. It costs a little bit of money, takes a little bit of time, but it's well worth getting it done, and it makes the patients feel better. Again, understand when CT is the best study and when ultrasound or MR can be done. Make certain when you do the CT, it's justified. Establish baseline radiation doses for adult patients. Make certain that the studies are done based on patient size. Children should get special children's protocols. You need to really optimize those pediatric protocols. Scan only the areas you need to scan. And the pediatric population, make sure it's child-friendly so the patient doesn't move and the patient cooperates so you don't need to repeat the study. Obviously, repeating the study doubles the dose. Now, it's important also to really understand, you know, how we deal with patients. And here's a good article by Verdon. The risk associated with the radiology exam appears to be rather low compared with natural risk. However, any risk, no matter how small, is unacceptable if it does not benefit the patient. So I think it's very important to tell the patient, look, we're doing this study because there's a question, and this is going to help us answer a problem. And there is a minimal risk, and we're not denying that or not underestimating that, but this is the right thing to do. And again, Cohn does a very good job making the point also that you have to be careful. Just lowering the dose is not good enough because you could lower the dose and then lower the information. And he makes the point there are two issues with radiation. One is the, the one being carcinogenic. The second is lowering it so that you don't make the diagnosis and that risk becomes much more critical. The first risk, he says, is well-recognized and much talked about, cumulative risk of increased incidence of cancer secondary to radiation exposure. The second little-discussed risk is that of missing a diagnosis because of suboptimal image quality as a consequence of radiation exposure settings that are too low. That indeed is a risk. So as he says, you need to balance both of these equations for the right answer. Now, there have been other articles, of course, that do make the point. Here was an article. Now, this was from England, and they had very high doses on head CT. You need to really look at the doses they were giving far, far more than anything we would have done. And they do talk about that if you have, you know, these scans, 
that you increase the risk of leukemia and brain tumors per 100,000 head CTs. Now, again, it was a small increase, and those are doses far higher than we ever give. But even in this article, they make the point very clearly that although benefits might outweigh the small absolute risks, the doses should be kept as low as possible, and alternative procedures should be done when possible. But if CT needs to be done, CT needs to be done. And CT is very good. There's no anesthesia. The speed of scanning is ideal for small and younger patients. So it will be the way we go. Now, another thing that's a little bit more difficult in some ways is the fact recognizing that your dose is going to be scanner dependent. And what I mean by that is some of the newest scanners, you get the dual source, you got the 256, the doses are much lower than getting on a 4 or a 16 or a 1 slice scanner. There's also difference in dose based on the vendors. That's just the way it is. So at the SCCT meeting this year, and a lecture I gave on CTSS a few months back, I spoke about hardware and how hardware was impacting the development of new things in cardiac CT, but a big part of that discussion also was on dosing. And so I spoke to each of the vendors, and they gave me some slides, so let me just cover a little bit of what I spoke about. G's new scanner, the CT750HD, with the gemstone detectors, provides 66% greater spatial resolution with an image resolution down to 0.23 millimeters. It also can do on a single tube, dual energy. But what they focused on is with these new detectors, with these new tubes and generators and recon engine, you have a brand new system that is really designed for many things, including low-dose CT. The fact that they have this new gemstone technology, the first new CT scintillator for them in 20 years, achieves high-resolution sub-second imaging and performs single-detector fast dual-energy imaging while reducing dose. It talks about how the new detectors have four times faster uh, afterglow, uh, so you can save dose in that respect as well. So very important changes within GE. And Philips, very much the same thing. Talking about doing functional CT at background radiation levels, and they talk about what they can do is they have shape changes for the beam. They have intelligent beam filters. They have new collimators. They have nanoparticle detectors. They have clear ray collimators and spherical detectors. They've really redone each and every part of the scanner. And then they put on top of that the new inter-dose reconstructions. And so you're really taking everything together to lower dose. Siemens has a number of things. You can do flash mode, picture 3.4. New detectors limit electronic noise. There's dual energy possibilities and inter-reconstruction with sapphire. And Sapphire, uh, very impressive new detectors for interfree construction, FDA filing 60% dose reduction potentially. And this whole idea about these new detectors, the ability to have a highly integrated design with electronic integration. And so what happens then, there's less noise, there's less crosstalk. And because of that, you can really reduce the radiation dose to the patient. And here's just an example showing you the difference with the stellar detectors compared to conventional detectors on looking at image noise. About 20% less noise, so it should have advantages in obese patients and uh, low-dose scans as well as in dual energy. 
Now, other things, one of the things that happens with spiral CT, typically before you scan the area you want, the x-ray beam comes on, and after you scan the area you want with the spiral, it stays on a bit. So you're radiating the early part and the late part for no reason, except it needs to be done. Well, now you have an adaptive dose shield, which prevents the beam from radiating the patient till you reach the area in question. And at the end of the study, protects the beam from covering an unnecessary area. So it's really this very nice elimination of over-radiation. So very important factors of what in fact is going on. Now Toshiba has a number of different things they talk about focusing on cardiac CT, dose reduction in great part because of the new iterative reconstruction. They talk about some of the speed of scanning as being a key factor. And they show very nicely in this example the, uh, how they acquire the data. And again, very, uh, again, progress. So things are indeed moving forward. Now, another thing, a good article speaks about this article by Coakley. What is it you can do in your practice? Now, you can't necessarily go out and buy a new scanner. That might be great. But what can you do? Well, first you have to do is look very carefully at what you're doing on a daily basis. Look at your protocols. Are the protocols updated recently? Are they 10 years old? Make sure you have the right protocols. If you don't have them, go to CTSS and we can help you out. You want to work closer with the technologists. You want to use these image reconstruction algorithms. You want to make the dose so much part of what you're doing on a daily basis that you're always thinking about it. And whether you're using a lower KVP selection, whether you're using interf reconstruction or dual energy, or looking at protocols and eliminating phases that are necessary, or minimizing the area scanned are all valuable things. Scanning the volume in question, sometimes people scan 20% too far. You don't need to scan the upper thigh in a pelvic CT scan. You want to make certain that you're only doing what you need to do. If the study is to follow right up a lung nodule, you probably don't need to scan the entire chest. Routinely, IV contrast works well. In most cases, I mentioned, you don't need contrast and non-contrast studies. Exceptions might be the kidney, the liver in select cases, and maybe select vascular cases. But again, figure out what is it you need to do. And the referring physicians have become very important in this regard. Tell us why you want the study, what you're looking for. We'll design the study. We can do the study so many different ways. Clinical history and the questions become very, very important. So working with our referring physicians is even more important than ever. And again, in terms of radiation dose in the clinical application, there's no doubt that certain exams will have higher dose. Cardiac CT now is a low-dose study, but some of the runoff studies, some of the multi-phase abdominal studies are going to have higher dose. Now, the literature has looked at dose a little bit, and this article uh, by Kim made the point that you could do low-dose abdominal CT and still be very accurate for looking at the appendix. We also talk about dual energy CT, and I've spoken a little bit in other lectures about dual energy CT, but the importance being because of the different uh, way uh, contrast and soft tissue and vessels uh, behave within a dual energy beam, you have a wide ability to really accentuate things. You can do virtual non-contrast studies. You can remove bone from the images. You can detect the presence of calcification and pull that out separately. And you can see the K-edge and atomic numbers of key elements. The K-edge really approaches that of iodine. So it's very, very important. You also, because of that, can give lower volumes of contrast and still get very much quality studies. Now, in dual energy, I'll just cover that a little bit and then we'll stop. 
for today. But in dual energy, the most common way to date is with the Siemens Technique dual X-ray tubes. But now a single X-ray tube with rapid switching is something GE is introducing. We typically scan at 100 and 140 kVp. 80 and 140 would be better. It's a bigger split, but the images have been very noisy on the 80, and we've been sticking to the 100. If you're able to eliminate certain parts of the exam, like a non-contrast study, then you're truthfully lowering the dose anywhere from one-third to one-half. So again, it has certain advantages. Dual energy, everyone's looking at trying to understand a bit more. On our scanner, as I mentioned, there are two tubes. You can see one is one kVp, one is the, is the other. And at a minimum, it's still dose neutral, so you're not increasing the dose to the patient. And if you can eliminate the non-contrast CT, you're really uh, helping the patient by decreasing dose. Now, with dual energy CT angiography, I particularly like it, head and neck and runoff studies, automated bone subtraction, you can do plaque removal, but very nice example. You see the bones are removed? The computer did that automatically. And here's the runoff studies in a patient with peripheral vascular disease, particularly well seen in both SFAs. But again, only looking at the... Um, the, the, uh, the dual energy images here, but in MIP, very nicely done. Another example, here's a case of a patient with dual energy and bone removal, and you can see that the patient's um, uh, base of the head and the skull are removed, and we all know that you could do bone removal automatically, and I could do it really well on runoffs, for example, around the pancreas, but I'll tell you, base of skull is very difficult, and look how good the system did so again, it's simply the two different energies, and you can see how nicely we can do it. And again, we're doing it on a dual-source um, dual scanner, but GE and others have claimed that you can do a single-source scanner. But nevertheless, I think it's very, very important. And when you look at dose reduction protocols, this whole idea of dual energy is one of the dose reduction protocols. Using lower KVPs, one. Interval reconstruction, which we'll speak about in a moment, is another. Elimination of unnecessary phases is another limit area of the volume to be scanned. So we really have a number of different things we can do. So indeed, it's very exciting. And this whole idea of inner reconstruction is a very interesting one. And perhaps it's one that I'll speak of in my next talk. Now with that, have a great day.